Hello everyone and welcome to Making Remote Work. Today I have the honor of hosting Professor Emeritus of the University of Texas, Cheryl Bishop. Cheryl, welcome to Making Remote Work. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Cheryl, could you start off by letting everyone know who you are, your research and major influences in your research and your life? Okay. Uh, well, I'm a social psychologist by training. And um, as I was going through graduate school, I decided that I wanted to get involved in the space program. But uh, 30-something years ago, there wasn't much of a role for psychology in any of the space agencies. And so my, uh, my chair and I discussed the situation, and we decided that the next best thing I could get involved in was looking at analog environments. And those are environments here on Earth that we can go study groups in and see how that they respond to the isolation, the confinement, the danger, and that kind of thing as kind of a substitute for actually studying space crews, which there weren't any at that time. Um, so that's what I did. I, I um, ended up, I've studied groups that have stayed over, wintered over in Antarctica. I've studied groups that have trekked across the deserts and glaciers and trek to the North Pole. Um, I've studied uh, other kinds of expeditions, deep cavers, and, I've, uh, and uh, people that have climbed mountains. So I've had a, an amazing opportunity to study all kinds of groups from two to, I guess, maybe the largest group would have been um, seven or eight. So these are very small groups. Um, uh, but how that they dealt with being confined, being isolated, being in Sometimes in situations and environments that have high risk of danger, you don't want to take a stroll in Antarctica in the middle of the winter. You know, you, you will die. Um, if you're in a submarine, you have to worry about leaks and things like this because <laughs> you don't breathe water very well. So, uh, And then we have a lot of what we call simulation ha habitats and facilities. And these are facilities that um, experimentally put in the isolation and the confinement um, and may or may not be located in, in an actual real environment or they may be located at places like Johnson Space Center or somewhere at the IBMP in Russia, someplace that's controlled and, and is very safe. Um, so, but they do offer an opportunity to look at how teams uh, and individuals respond in a more controlled experimental uh, condition. So, we trade off some reality for, for that control, but that's pretty much what has influenced me and where I've been, what I've been doing for the last thirty years. You're the perfect person to talk to about isolation <laughs> and confinement, although in a bit of yeah, a different situation, definitely. Mm -hmm. But but still, we are faced with isolation and confinement, and even restarting this. Right, we mm -hmm. were all under lockdown. Things and rules have been eased. And now we might face another lockdown depending mm -hmm. on the country or, or at least partial shutdowns and, and so on. So you have studied all these extreme environments. Did anything in particular get your interest or maybe it felt different while you were seeing this epidemic rollout as related oh. to isolation and confinement? Right. Um well, the, you know, one of the things that we've persistently found with crews who go away 
to a place is that then they will talk about how much they miss their family and friends. You know, they're away from their family. Usually they're with a, a group of acquaintances or professionals. And so they, they have that uh, concern and longing to stay in touch with what's going on back home. And when they're in environments like Antarctica, where they're gone for a year, that can become quite stressful. The interesting thing with the, the COVID uh, lockdown is that we're, we're being locked down with our families. And I don't think people anticipated um, exactly the pros and cons of, of that. You know, obviously, if you're with your family, you're, you don't have to be worrying about your family. But if you're with your family, you never have a break from the family. And uh, I, people who have small children and that type of thing, I, I you know, I so empathize <laughs> with the situation where there's n- not an opportunity to just kind of step away because we're working in our homes. I mean, you have kids in your quote office while you're trying to carry on your business. You have kids when you're out of the office, and and, and it's all uh, the whole day starts kind of merging together. And I think that's been a very unique source of stress. And I think that those people who have had um, opportunities to work from home, they work those situations out. But even in those circumstances, they still had opportunities to leave the home and go out, go out to eat, take them out to, you know, the fast food, whatever, that kind of thing. They had a, a way to kind of separate their office area from their work and, and family life. And with COVID, not being able to leave and go elsewhere has even taken away that avenue. So even those people who are real practiced at working from home have had some new challenges thrown in their way that they've had to figure out all over again. While wow, you know, how do I deal with this? So I think that's that's a it's a new element, and I think we're all in the same boat trying to find solutions. Sure. You're in Texas. It's one of the hotspots as, as, as far as the news travels years, uh, here. And it feels like you had rules relaxed. Now they are getting back, right? Things are getting shut down again. Opening plans are being postponed. Mm-hmm. How does this affect uh, you and the people, the, your family, your friends, that you're facing a new closure? Right. Um, I think there's two general reactions to that whole Uh, cycle. One is this kind of reluctance acceptance that, oh my God, yeah, well, we got to do it because, you know, if you go out there, you're going to catch COVID. And I don't want my kids to have it. I don't want my mother to have it. I don't want my dad to have it, whatever. So there's that kind of reluctance acceptance of the necessity. Then there's the other side. It's um, that it's kind of a a resistance and it's an ambivalent resistance. You understand that there's risk, but you're at the point where you're thinking, yes, there's risk in everything. You start this conversation with you. There's risk in everything. There's a risk I could walk out and be hit by a bus. So you have this dialogue with yourself. And I think that the the first reaction is driven mostly by fear, fear for oneself and, and family members. The The other side is driven by the fact that Uh, a lockdown isn't just uh, the risk of contracting the disease. A lockdown has financial, economic, community impacts. And it's easy when you're in an emergency to do the, the absolute necessary thing. 
if, if your house is burning, you run out of the house. You don't think about all the stuff that is going to get burned up. You grab the kids, the pets, you get out of the house, right? That's the emergency response. But if, if you just have termites, well, you can think about, well, I need to take this out of this room because they're going to be, they tear this wall out so you can be planful about it. And I think people having gone through the first wave suffered the financial losses of not being able to go to work, suffered the community losses of, there are small businesses that are closing down everywhere. This is not just for Texas, everywhere. Um, there are large businesses that are closing down. We see major restaurant chains that are closing here because they just, they're trimming all their marginal locations and this is the time that they're going to do it. So you see your community being seriously affected by these economic um, things that are going on. And then you, you become more and more resistant to, we can't do that. The cost is too great. We can't do a complete shutdown. We can't devastate our community. We can't devastate our finances just because of the risk of getting sick. We always have the risk of getting sick. And that's why the flu um, the risk of getting flu gets brought up over and over and over again because we've had epidemics and pandemics of different strains of flu, and we didn't we didn't shut down the whole nation because of that. So people gravitate to that analogy, even though there's it's not a straight up analogy. There's lots of inaccuracies in making those two analogies, but from the emotional side. They're saying, no, 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 look at the additional cost. That has to be weighed in there also. And they don't feel like it's being weighed. And so they get very resistant to being willing to go back to 100% lockdown again. Yeah, it's the same that uh, that we see here. And I think it's quite surprising because uh, we live in countries that were maybe more relaxed. So in the Netherlands, there are big uh, protests against the, against the 1.5 meter mm. rule. Uh, mm -hmm. Switzerland, even though they've done well, now they think and they have mistrust in their government because uh, they think that uh, the rules and the measures were too drastic and uh, the situation didn't ask yeah. for such drastic rules. So they are not trusting their government. But is this a, a reaction to isolation and confinement or just to economic distress? I think it's both. I mean, if... You noticed that when the the first wave, when they, the first shutdown, there, there was not as much conversation or resistance against it. There were some who said, I'm not going to do that, blah, blah, blah. Um, but by and large, most of the population was willing to do it. And we have a lot of practice here on the Gulf Coast because when we have hurricanes come in, we have this thing called, uh, you know, hunker down to, to, to reside in place. And that means to prepare your home, you know, for flood, tornadoes, that kind of thing, but stay in place. So um, we, we, that concept is not foreign to a great deal of people here in, in my area. So when they say, don't go out, stay in place, we're going to do this lockdown, we're going to shut down the businesses, we're going, oh, okay, we've done this, we did this with last, you know, four hurricanes. Elsewhere, the, the first time they did it, everybody was driven by the emergency, the necessity, right, the specter of covid now, on the second time around, it's they're say, again, there's they've been isolated, so they're they're feeling stressed out, and they're looking at, oh no, going back to another four weeks or six weeks and not being able to leave the house at all. Are you kidding me? So, yes, some of the emotional reaction, the the willingness to abide 
by what they're being told to do. That resistance is driven by the fact that they've already done it and they don't want to do it again unless it's absolutely necessary. And that's where all the debate is it absolutely necessary? Do do all those other costs weigh against the risk that some people are going to catch COVID? And so that that's the debate that's going on internally and, and externally. Um, Sherry, maybe you have seen, because I've tried to look at some research uh, to see that depression rates go up, that suicide rate go up, yeah. anxiety, but I didn't find anything. I found people worrying that they might uh, go up uh, because they, they paralleled the events which were maybe similar. Uh, I just spoke with Professor Tammy Allen from the University of Florida, and she said they did some research and there was weight gain, uh, alcohol consumption increase, uh, uh, yeah, domestic violence increase. So those studies, they have been done. But do you know anything about, uh, yeah, I don't know, depression rates, anxiety? Yeah. No, because again, where are we going to get our data? We, we're not allowed to go to the doctor for anything that's not an emergency. If you're not bleeding out, you don't show up <laughs> at the ER. You know they're going to turn you away. So, um, it, it, people that are experiencing these symptoms, then these these feelings and these emotions and stuff, they may get a. They, we started telemedicine reach outs here some weeks ago they may get a consult with their uh, their provider and but it's a telephone consult and what the provider do will you generally make the best assessment they can do via telemedicine and then maybe call in a, a script but you have short-term responses and then you have long-term responses and it it takes a fairly dramatic kind of depression for you to be able to have a telephone, one-time telephone consult and say, this is a temporary response to the distress of having to be at home. Or no, you've crossed a line into a, a, a true pathological condition that needs more serious attention. And like I said, people the, the technology is new. I don't know that there's a lot of people who are used to sitting down in front of a computer and having a conversation with their doctor and being anywhere near as frank as what they would be maybe in the office where the doctor can also see nonverbal, uh, you know, motions and, and responses in their body language and that kind of thing. That's a little bit more difficult to be a, a virtual screen. So we won't know the answers to are there increasing cases of depression and that type of thing till further down the road. It's a lag effect. If I have a heart attack, it's immediate. If I'm depressed, I can mask it for a long time before it gets acute enough that somebody, my family or something else will bring me to the attention of a doctor and say, no, this is different. This needs some attention. I need your help. So do you expect the rates will go up? I think I think probably there are a, a significant um, increase in I'm going to call it situational depression, depression due to the distress, the feelings of helplessness. I mean, there's nothing we can do about it. There's nothing you or I individually can do that can go out there and make things immediately better. If the house is burning, I can put out the fire. I can call the fire department. I can't do anything about the COVID rates out there. I mean, as a mass, 
wearing masks and taking all the preventive measures has an impact, but not one individual to solve the immediate distress. So I, I think that, yes, that there are, there's, there's more people feeling anxious. There's more people feeling distressed. That's why we see the use of alcohol going up. It's boredom plus it's distress, right? You have, the, you have your, your beer or your cocktail or your glass of wine in the evening because you haven't got anything else to do, but also it makes you feel a little mellowed out, a little less, you know, trapped, and I think that feeling of being trapped is what people are trying to kind of push off. And it's uh, at some point even hard to recognize it. I was mm-hmm. one of those that said, no, I'm not affected at all. But the moment <laughs> that the uh, rules relaxed and we were able to go out and I had the trust to hug my friends, mm-hmm. uh, I, I such a feeling of joy and relief and happiness and positive energy that I don't want to let go of that. So. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's, it is incredible and it's hard to recognize as well because you believe you're strong and you have your partner next to you and everything is going okay, but in the end you do miss uh, social interaction. So I have a question for those that maybe feel like me, uh, that don't really think that they are affected or they don't right. recognize it yet. And there are different behaviors that maybe can uh, lead them to, the, to acknowledging and understanding what they're going through. How does this look like? Um. Well, the fact that you're affected? Yes. <laughs> um, well, you know, I, I think one way you might kind of take your own temperature is to see how willing are you to take some small risk <clears throat> and how likely are you to justify taking those. For instance, <laughs> I mean, uh, I've, we have people that come to our house that have been doing like yard work and that kind of thing. Uh, it's outside. We don't have to worry about having masks on and that kind of thing. But here in Texas, in our culture, when you meet somebody, it, whether you know them or not, you reach out and shake hands, right? And so now people will arrive, and and the the impulse is to reach out and shake hands, and then you you kind of go, oh, I'm you know, sorry, I'll just bump elbows, or you make some kind of a joke about it, and and there are people who will go like, oh no, I, I don't put up with that, and stick that hand out there because they're they're like, no, I'm not going to give that up. Okay. Now, my sense of it is that the first time around during the lockdown, everybody would have been no, no questions, no resistance about not doing a, something as simple as foregoing shaking hands, right? I have people who tell me, I, I don't put up with that and shake hands. Now, they may go into their truck and immediately use the hand gel or whatever, but it's like, no, they want that social that social ritual to stay intact because it's part of making contact with others. And my daughter was commenting that when she goes through goes grocery shopping and she has her mask on, she finds herself deliberately really overemphasizing the smile under the mask so that her eyes will squint so that other people can tell that she's smiling at them because it's important to her that they know that she's being friendly, that it's not just this mask walking around with the two eyes looking at and that kind of thing, that she's over trying to emphasize communicating through the eye squint that she's glad to see them. If you find yourself doing things like that, if you find yourself being resistant to giving up, little niceties if you find yourself like no we're going to go out to eat we'll sit at the corner table we are going out to eat 
then maybe the isolation and confinement is actually having an impact on you because you're now getting a little bit more assertive about some of the small things that you're not going to give up anymore. So that would be that would be one, uh, yeah. one sign. <laughs> do you think this can have long-term effects or do you think they're just short-term? This will not go away, right? We all know it, that, that uh, right. it, it, it's here to stay and maybe at some point we will accept it. But do you think that yeah, it, what we're experiencing right now, anxiety, depression, uh, weight gain, distress, might have long-term effects? Um, well, obviously, yes. If you gain weight, I'm here to tell you that it's really hard to go hard to go away. <laughs> You're going to be fighting the COVID pounds for a long time. <laughs> so, um, uh, yes, the, it's it's been very interesting. It's, when you know, look at it from a social psychological point of view, I I sit here and go like, um, this this is culturally modifying. And, and, and every culture will have their own little version of it. But it, even it, as simple as the way that we greet each other, right? Um, I, I'm very curious just to see once the COVID epidemic has now died away or they found a vaccine or whatever route it ends up taking, um, how comfortable people are going to be with being in very large crowds again. My sense of it is that it, there will be some generational influence. The younger you are, the more likely you are to not have prolonged lasting impact, You're, right? Because the young believe that they're invulnerable and, you know, death is something that happens when you get old. The older you are, the risks become much more closer in proximity. And that the, the older you are, the more... Um, impact and prolong those those behavioral changes are going to be uh, are we are, are people my age and stuff ever going to be comfortable with being in a, in a large gathering again with lots of people around that you don't know I mean already if you're someplace and someone coughs or sneezes what's the first thing you do you look over there to see how close they are to you you know and do they have a mask on or how close are they to you before you would have just never even paid attention, right? So that heightened sense of risk, I think will will modify our behavior going forward. Now, if we go, you know, 10, 15 years and nothing ever comes up again or happens again in that framework to again, re-trigger and reinforce those uh, concerns, that heightened awareness, then it will slowly dissipate and people will going back to doing what they're doing. Um, so it, it'll be an interesting period uh, for many years to come. I'm sure there'll be lots and lots of studies that come out of I'm, this period. <laughs> I'm curious as well to see what comes yep. out and uh, see the actual uh, effects of this. You have studied these extreme environments and coping in them. What can we learn and take away from your research that we can use during this pandemic and the others that might come or... Right, right. Well, it's interesting. A, a colleague of mine, it, it was like shortly after the first um, 
recommendations went out worldwide to do the social distancing and the lockdown and that type of thing, um, he raised the issue about, you know, all of us who are doing isolation, you know, research or stuff, we really ought to go through our findings and put together a quick tip sheet. And so we did, he did for the primary work, and then we did um, the rest of the work. Um, and so we have this quick tips for, you know, dealing with the isolation and the confinement. Um, and, and when you read through them, they all sound like common sense things, right? It's, you know, to, to use computer resources to, you know, broaden your horizons, interactive games to take you out of the immediate isolation, have your kids do educational things that engage them in crafts. And, and the whole list, you go like, oh, okay, yeah, I already knew that. Or, yeah, well, that makes sense. Oh, yeah, that's a nice spin on it. I hadn't thought about going to that website. There's nothing that's, that's like Eureka. That's the answer. Because we've all had to deal with short periods where we've not been able to go out. A kid is sick. We've been sick. Whatever. Hurricanes, those kinds of things. What I think people have benefited from in these kinds of advices or and and all of the advice that's being passed around on social media about, oh, hey, you might go try this, is that they haven't had to do it for a prolonged period of time. Think about schooling. All the schools that went to online education that are now making the decision for the new school year to offer both online education and in-school education for those that desperately need to have their kids go somewhere during the day so they can go back to work. That change to distance education for the primary schools and secondary schools here in the United States, at least, would not have happened for decades to come if this hadn't happened. Now that it has happened, there will be many kids that the online schooling will be a better fit for than going into the, the in, in site, on-site schooling. That has fundamentally changed how education is delivered at the earliest ages. Now, that's going to have a profound effect of which we don't know the the boundaries of that effect right now. So um, we can tell people how to entertain themselves. We can tell people how to keep from feeling isolated, you know, FaceTime, virtual Zoom, those kinds of things. Um, and they will all help. They are not, they can't substitute or as you noted, that kind of direct face-to-face -face personal contact. So the decision, what most people are making is that I'm going to have some of that personal contact within a limited framework. I'm going to go see my family. I'm going to have my nieces and nephews, Ken, over. We're going to have birthday parties. We won't invite the whole neighborhood. We'll have just, you know, the family over. Um, there, we'll take a vacation. We'll get in a recreational vehicle, RV, and go camping in the park. Is but we'll get out and we'll get away. We won't go to the hotel. You know, we'll go. So they're making lifestyle decisions in order to deal with that distress, and the tips out of isolated and confined. The research is, yeah, you do all those things. You do the things that you have the resources to do in order to combat that. And Cheryl, uh, 
in the environments you have studied, even though extreme, those people were put there and they knew that they were going there, right? In mm -hmm. analog spaces, in deserts and so on, but they knew that they are going to be there. Where this I, was, chose. Yeah, they chose it. Where this was not uh, chosen. And I'm sure besides that, they, they also were somehow trained before. Right? These are trained individuals who expect that they're going maybe to be isolated for a long period of time. Can mm -hmm. we draw any conclusions or any insights on the type of trainings that maybe organizations might be doing to support their employees and just foster a bit of well-being? Right. You know, uh, it's interesting when you talk about from the employer-employee perspective, because obviously, if I'm an employer and I have a remote working employee, and I was a remote working employee, um, that the, you as the employer want to make resources available that may help mitigate any source of distraction or distress that would impact performance. You as an employer are not so concerned, I'm, that, I'm using that word real broadly, about uh, whether uh, uh, an employee's kids are being entertained, right? That's for that parent to, to take care of and stuff. But if concern about their kids is impacting that employee's performance, then just like when em employers used to make daycares available, right? They didn't do that because they were concerned that the kids would have a place to stay. They did it because they wanted to provide that service to their employee to remove that area of concern so the employee could focus on the work. So from the employer's perspective, the ideal here is what resources can I make available to my employees that will help mitigate their working from home concerns, distractions, and imp impacts to performance. And if that is to offer resources to their family, then it is cost effective, then why wouldn't I do that? So if it's just a, a, an altruistic thing, well, if I have the resources to do that, then I'll do that. But if it's not cost effective and it has, you know, uh, there's that whole cost versus benefit ratio that has to go on, um, then it may be still up to the employee to find ways to deal with those things going on at home. So um, from an employer perspective, we take a different approach than we do as a, say, a mental health provider where we're more concerned with the, the whole milieu of circumstances. Yeah, for sure. And uh, also talking about working from home, right? Most of us are working from home. This might become a trend. You have studied how to actually design habitats to make them more performant, to make them less stressful, to make them more prone to, yeah, uh, providing us the well-being right. that uh, so we can perform better. How should we think about the workspaces, whether the employer would help us uh, fund some of that or ourselves, we need to build an environment that, that where we just feel good. Right, right. Well, of course, most uh, in the isolated, confined environments that I typically look at, um, they are not allowed to go outside because either they're simulating <laughs> being on the moon or Mars, and that's not, you know, you can't take a stroll outside without a suit. Or, um, so in their case, the confinement excludes the outdoors. Their confinement actually, we it's not always true, but we prefer that they not even be able to look out at greenery and those kinds of things because you're not going to have that on Moon or Mars, right? 
to that extent, the confinement that we're going under with COVID and stuff, thank goodness, doesn't prohibit that. And and we being able to go outside, literally the act of walking outside and being able to be outdoors in the open air and the open sky, um, to be able to look at greenery. We know that greenery is very restorative and, and, and refreshing and that kind of thing. These things, I know people that have been playing golf the entire lockdown because they go out on a golf course, they're by themselves, it's exercise, they, so it, it fits within all of the restrictions, you know, and the golf centers have just made their courses open. You come, you just go. You don't check in, you don't, there's no employees, blah, blah, blah. So, um, the confinement isn't the same. So, if you're it's if you're feeling you know, cabin fever, so to speak, like yeah, I'm sick of this house, then you can go out. You can do something outside. You can rearrange your environment inside. You can shift things around, turn the furniture around. A lot of people are engaged in home renovation projects, right? Because it it's work. It's something that renews the environment. Um, they can go down. You know, and and order the materials and pick it up on the curb and come back with the paint and everything and still continue to do stuff. Um, but it, in the environments where I'm at, you you only have the resources that you brought. So, um, what's good if you only if you could have one thing and or one thing to change in your house that could make a difference? What would you change? I'm thinking of the guys in, I don't know, Paris, New York, where it's still right. under confinement and they're small apartments right? and they can't get out and maybe it's, uh, yeah, they don't even have enough, uh, enough light. <laughs> right, right, right. Oh, well, like in a small space, you know, I don't know. You could, if you want to reconfigure, redecorate, renew the, your social space, like where everybody sits, like your living room, that kind of thing, that would be, one way because it's a shared space, it's social space. It would it will renew and refresh that that environment for the whole group rather than you just doing your bedroom where only you are the person that's going to benefit from it. And it can be a group project, so you can get everybody involved in like, okay, I'm gonna let's repaint this place or let's hang, let's let's do something. You know, what do we want to do? Uh, and get everybody involved in it. And I'm, when I have my grandkids over for the summer, we always do these these kind of joint group craft projects. And it can be as simple as one year we decided to put up that I took some old tablecloths and had them paint the tablecloths with different color cloth fabric paints. And we hung them up as awnings. It was a temporary thing. You know, we, we knew that they were going to stay up all summer long, but it, they had a great deal of fun doing it. And it was bright and it was colorful. You can do this and hang, you know, a, a, a wall mural or a curtains across new windows or something or do a play area for kids, you know, to put down and, and then play on after it, it's constructed. So things that engage uh, people in creativity that's an outlet it feels good it makes you feel productive it makes you feel uh, satisfied that you're creating something and it doesn't have to be a, a masterpiece it, it doesn't have to be permanent it can be you could change it every week you could you know uh, a lot of people are doing indoor gardens or you know uh, little small gardens because you can do it in pot plants and, and potter uh, 
planters and that kind of thing. And that's, again, restorative. You have something that's growing, it's producing, it's changing. It requires a minimal amount of attention and care. Uh, and so it's satisfying in that sense. So. Very, very good advice. I'll start gardening as well. I, I was never okay. a big fan, but I have to start doing <laughs> 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 yes. Cheryl, there's other thing that I noticed is as we work from home, we start working more and there's less work family balance. Mm. Somehow you're more and more next to the computer doing your thing, trying to be as productive as possible, working longer hours. And I fear that this might have an effect as well. What are your thoughts on that? Yes. I mean, you know, uh, and especially for those of us who uh, our our entertainment also comes from the computer, right? So your, your kids and your grandkids never know if, when they walk up to you, are you working or are you, is Uma sitting there watching, you know, a YouTube video that I might want to watch. So they typically come around and peek to see what's on the screen. And then they know whether it's okay to climb up in my lap or to, you know, uh, no, no, she's talking to somebody I don't recognize. Um, so yeah, we're in the we're we're not changing where we are, what we're doing, and the tools that we're using when we go between work and and play, and that makes it kind of all meld together. It makes it very easy for work to intrude into time that really should be separate. You know, you're laying there in bed, and you're sitting there, and you're thinking about the email that you didn't answer because you can't separate it it's it's right in the next room that you walk by your computer and you go like oh man i didn't sit down and finish that you sit down and then you're back into work so that whole melding of work and family life is has its risk it has its downsides because if there's a so any kind of pressure or stress from the work that you do then that never completely goes away you can't step away and say, I'm, I'm walking out of the office, I'll take care of it tomorrow, and leave and then go to a new environment where a different set of responses are now invoked. They're all just mixed together. And I think that's why a lot of people are feeling that kind of sense of trapped because they can't ever get away. Mentally, you can't step away. It's very, very difficult to separate work and family in those situations. And unsurprisingly, most of us can't do it 100%. Can we form new habits and new routines to make sure that we do take care of that? Any advice to do that? If you have the availability to have a separate space for your office, like I, I literally have my office over here in a separate building on my property. So when I walk out of here and walk over to my house, I'm making that mental trip from work to home. If you have an office, uh, a room that you can make your office, then what you, if, when you get up and you walk out of that office, mentally make that transition. That work is in there. I'm not in there. I'm out here. I, I, I have dinner to fix. I have my kids to talk to. I have a movie to watch. You know, I'm going to sit down and talk with my spouse. We're not going to talk about work. We're going to talk about something else. Maybe all the other issues that need to be dealt with, but it's not what goes on in there. 
So if you have that luxury of having a separate space, that will help. If you if you don't, if your workspace is literally in the same room and area where you also have your family, then what I would suggest is that when you finish work, then you close those applications, you close that email, you close those things so that as you walk by that desk, if you sit down at that desk to do something recreational, the work stuff is away. You've you've you're you're off work. The email is closed. You'll look at it tomorrow. The spreadsheet is closed. You'll look at it tomorrow. Don't leave it up there on your screen because when you sit down, now you're back in work mode. Just a simple visual reminder of oh yeah, yeah, I gotta finish that, I gotta do that. Just close it. Make it a mental habit, a ritual, if you will, that when you clock out, you close it down. That act of closing it down is that trigger for you mentally to say, tomorrow's another day, you know, and then to go on into your family part of your life. Yeah, I think it's very important because lately in the past two or three weeks, I've heard so many of the people that I collaborate with or work with, they're somehow shutting down everything because they reached a point of burnout and they just feel they can't do it anymore. And they are closing everything, uh, not taking any calls, not taking it mm-hmm. because they, yeah, it's, it has been too much. Yep. And I, and I've done the same thing. I mean, I have two different family businesses so, and um, I will see an, a notification come up on my phone that I've got an email coming in that pertains to one of the business. My first knee jerk reaction is uh, I'll get up and go over and, and re- just respond to just that email. And what I've done lately is as I'll no. They can wait till Monday. Nothing is going to happen if I don't go over there and answer that email right away. It is Saturday. It is Sunday. I'm not at work. You know, it's and it may be easier for people of my generation to do that because we grew up not having 24-7 access to every, I mean, if you wanted to use the telephone, you had to go find a physical phone booth somewhere to call someone or go home, you know, and if you missed a phone call, you didn't early on, it makes me sound like I'm in the, in the stone yeah, age. I, no, no didn't. you're not. I had the same. So well, um, and I, we didn't even have a message, a phone message machine, right? It, you would, you would wait next time someone called you, you pick it up. And they go, I've been calling you like for three days and I'm going like, okay, well, obviously I wasn't here to answer the phone. Uh, that, that's not such a far removed, you know, memory that it's not, but even then, if I leave my cell phone, I turn around and go back and get it. So I'm, I'm not completely off the hook, but those people who've never, ever not been in touch, it's, it's a harder thing to ask them because it feels like, again, they're giving up something like it's that whole reactive. So I'm going to turn my phone off because I'm not going to answer everything. <laughs> okay. Just leave it at home. No, no, I'm going to keep it with me in case I need to turn it off. <laughs> it's mobile. Now you can take it That's with a, you. No, no, I, I have the choice. I have the choice <laughs> to turn it on and off. And some of them are choosing to turn it off and that's okay. I, I mean, I, you know, I'll call and try and get hold of a family member. They don't answer the phone. And after my first, like, well, why didn't he answer? I'll just leave them a message. Call me when you can. It's not an emergency, you know? <laughs> and so that's okay. Shutting that's okay down can do. be useful. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, Cheryl, 
You've been studying isolation, confinement, the effects of it on, on the mental health being for a long time. And you have been through this pandemic. Any thoughts, any ideas so we can better prepare for the future for similar situations so we can just cope better as individuals and organizations? Well, like I said, I think a whole um, a whole different level of resources have uh, and behaviors um, have come out of this that people would not have been uh, either aware of or not used as much. Let, let's even uh, eating out. Eating out now isn't just going to a restaurant. In fact, for a, quite a number of weeks now, eating out has been having Uber foods will bring you your food or, you know, somebody like that or driving up somebody running out with a mask on and handing you a bag through a, a window, you know, from your favorite restaurant. Uh, so we have now uh, been introduced. Those people who had never used those kind of resources have been introduced to those resources. Grocery shopping online. That may be the single biggest change in home behavior because before we had to grocery shop online only a few people use those kinds of services right if you were infirmed or sick or elderly or there couldn't go yourself for some reason you would go ahead and use those services now everybody uses this like you know we have we have group apps that say add things here we're gonna we're gonna put in our order and the whole family puts stuff on the list and the order goes in and then somebody will run over there and pick up all the groceries or they'll deliver it to us to our door the the convenient having to do that makes people willing to spend the money to do it the little service fee for having it brought to you because then they don't have to get up and go. It, it may have made us into a much more sedentary population because now we're having everything delivered to us. Amazon will bring us everything from toilet paper to, you know, air conditioners and, and we can go have the groceries delivered to us. We can have our food delivered to us. I think a lot of that behavior will persist even when we don't have it. But when the next necessity comes around, it will not be as distressing because we won't be engaging in as many new behaviors. We'll be continuing to do some things that we kept and held on to, or we'll go back to, okay, fine, you know, and we've got to do grocery shopping online. Now it's not quite as big a selection, uh, but, uh, you know, I know how to do it. I don't have to go and learn how to do it. So the learning curve for uh, dealing with the next pandemic will not be anywhere near as steep. This first one, everybody had to learn how to do new things in a different way. Everybody had to think about, okay, now when I drive up to a place, I got to get out. I got to remember to take my mask out and put it on or get all the way up to the door and see the signs that says, you can't come in if you don't have a mask, you know? Oh yeah, yeah, got to put the mask on. Nah, if we have another mask, you know, requirement, We'll all have prettier masks. It won't be these temporary ones. We'll have our names engraved on it, maybe a smile or whatever. You know, well, being prepared, it will be familiar and it won't be as distressing. So in that alone, the next wave will not be as, as uh, bad as what this has been. What do you think about the practice of uh, mindfulness and even meditation as, as part of that or leading to that? Sure. I mean, you know, mindfulness has, has, and meditation and those kinds of things have always been uh, one, some of the tools to deal with stress and distress. Um, 
different people. I mean, my sister went to yoga classes. She couldn't do yoga, go to the yoga classes anymore, but she can do it right in her own home. She can do the same routines. You know, she put on the video and follow along with the virtual, you know, yoga instructor and that kind of thing. So um, any of those practices that are inward reflecting can be done regardless of where you're at. You can be in a crowded airport or you can be alone in a forest. You're, you're, you're not attending to the external environment. You're interning to the internal environment, right? So uh, I think that maybe more people will try those things because if you're at home and you're sick and tired of watching YouTube videos and you don't want to, you know, see the next thing on Netflix or whatever it is that you're subscribed to, exercise comes in many different ways. And some of it, it just needs to be the mental exercise of how do you calm yourself down? How do you stop that monkey mind from yakking so much? And there will be a lot of people who will say, oh, well, you know, okay, I'll give it a try. A certain percentage of it will go like, wow, this is really nice. It really works. A certain percentage will go like, meh, no, I can't. Yeah, I'm bored to tears doing it. Right, it's too too much sitting still. Well, there's Tai Chi. There's a whole bunch of other different things that may fit better. So, you know, maybe a lot of people will find these kinds of resources something that they'll be willing to try. Whereas had COVID not happened, had the pandemic not happen they would have never ever considered them there's another tool be in the some toolbox. good exactly should be something <laughs> yes. good coming out of it as well. <laughs> cheryl thank uh, you so much for today is there something that you wanted to share and maybe i didn't ask uh, not well I, I think people ought to sometimes you have to say it to them in order for them to accept it is that it's perfectly normal to be feeling this sense of feeling trapped because in 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 the in the most pragmatic empirical sense we are we're we're not as trapped as if you're in antarctica i will tell you that that what we have to go through here is nothing that like those guys up there where if you step outside you're not going to die you know (laughs) so um and i think if you kind of can keep anybody who's been in a submarine environment will tell you that you know just the ability to be out and to look up around is this huge gift it's it's perfectly normal to feel that you're trapped it's perfectly normal to feel stress it's perfectly normal to feel confined recognize it for what it is you know do what you can to mitigate it Talk to others. Sometimes just, you know, just saying, oh, my God, I have cabin fever so bad. And everybody goes, yes, oh, and it's like, oh, we're all on the same page. Yes, you're feeling what I'm feeling, just that sharing. You know, don't don't bottle it up. Don't whine incessantly about it because that just makes people want to avoid you eventually. (laughs) But it's normal. It's okay. Because a lot of people think like, well, if I start, you know, if I say that I'm feeling locked up, people are going to think I'm, you know, having mental issues no you're feeling a normal sense of confinement you're feeling a normal sense of being trapped acknowledge it own it figure out a way to make it better Cheryl, thank you so much for today you're welcome <laughs> it's always a pleasure talking with you thank you <laughs>